Did, uh, did everyone who's here, did you check your name on the little roster? Okay. Reason why I ask, because sometimes there's more people in here than our, the marks are checked. And the reason why it's important is because Pastor Coleman and I are competitive. Yeah, the sermon was just like that. He didn't mention that, you know, he didn't mention that. But because I'm winning, and that's why. So we're, we're having a contest uh, of who has the most people in the Sunday school class. And he looks at that roster, and then he counts, and then he compares his number to my number. So I just want to make sure everybody has checked, make sure that you check. And then if you want to, you can put a few extra checks in there if you want to. Do what? Did you listen to the sermon? I did. I did. I did. And he failed to mention how competitive he is and then how competitive I am. And these are things that go on behind the scenes. I'm just sort of letting you in on a little thing there. But uh, I was reminded of that while he was, you know, preaching this sermon about greatness. <laughs> and who is the best at whatever we do, you know? Serving Jesus, of course. No, no, it's not a quota, but it's just sort of this... He every once in a while reminds me that, you know, like his class is bigger. You know, he just reminds me of that. And it just annoys me to no end. So, Oh, you know what? I could count the podcast. I could say, hey, 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 how many podcasts have you done, Pastor Coleman? Yes. I love that. That's perfect. And he'll never catch up. He'll never. That's perfect. Well, I had a very good week on Tuesday. Um, I do this once a year, is I invite uh, about 15 or 16 of the area uh, LCMS pastors in the area to go to a base- baseball game. And so we went. This is different from the spring training group. That's a different thing. Okay. But this is uh, uh, Metroplex pastors, and we get some tickets. The Rangers are very generous, especially when there's a lot of empty seats in the stadium. Um, and so they gave us uh, they gave us uh, 15 tickets, and yeah, isn't that nice? And so then uh, we have a little tailgate. Uh, we went to one of the parks in Arlington and and did a little tailgate. Everybody everybody brings something, and then uh, and then we went to the game. It was very nice, and it was against the Astros, <laughs> and it was the one game we won. <laughs> yes, yes. And so one of the guys that he's, he's a he's a young guy, he's uh, he is the one of the associate pastors over in uh, Alito. Uh, he's a Cardinal fan, and so I didn't. Usually I make some you know rules about what you can wear, but this time I didn't make any rules about that. And so then he comes wearing this Cardinals hat, the cap. That it was a beautiful hat. It was a dark, you know, dark color, and then it had um, that St. Louis, you know, letters on it, S T L, and it was in gold. And I said, "Wow, where did you get that cap?" And he goes, "When you wear, when you win a world championship, you get to wear that cap." So I said, "Well, you're on the bad list for next year. I don't know if." We can allow you to come. But then I forgave him 
because the shirt that he was wearing was the best shirt ever I've ever seen. It was it had a circle on it with a, a, a astro star in the middle. Yes, and it said Houston Asterix. <laughs> So I said, this is really good. I like this. I, I forgive you. Well, I took a picture of it so I can send it to selected folks. You know, anybody you know that's an Astro fan. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that. Yes, I, I have your number. Thank you. Yes. Okay, um, another thing is, last week we talked a little bit about um, millennialistic views of the end times. And you might remember this little chart. I think we looked at it way, way, way back when we first began about five years ago on this. Uh, but I put some extra copies there if you want a, a, a copy of this. Just to, so it's a very, um, it's a very elementary thing. It's not ornate or anything like that. But it does uh, illustrate the differences between premillennialism, postmillennialism, and then what the way I've been teaching this is what's called amillennialism. So it's just that the different viewpoints of particularly Revelation 20, which has the thousand-year reign. Is it symbolic? Is it literal? What's the sequence of those things? And so anyway, I thought, well, I'm going to include that in our conversation for today as well. Okay, so I think we're ready to get started. So last week, what we saw, and we're seeing this now as we're bringing Revelation to a close, that's, that's hopeful thinking, I know, on my part, uh, is is a picture of the immediate uh, end of days, where it, it, sort of the sense of that the victory in Christ has totally been been won. That that is without question, and that's the continued message for Christians who are living under the duress of a world where. God is bringing all these things to his culmination. He's bringing all these things to an end, and Christians are living in the world. And so Christians are impacted by that. At the same time, the devil, the, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, all the, all the uh, powers at be that are resisting and rejecting Christ and are trying to take as many people down with them as they can are working extra hard. They're doubling up their efforts to pull down the church and to cause Christians to think that it is not worth it to hang on to faith, that, it's, that, that there's no value to it, and that if only you would give yourself over to a rejection of Christ, then your life in this life would be that much better. And there are lots of people who are buying into that today. And so the, the message of of Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 is stay true to your faith. Stay, hang on to your faith. Stay, stay true to the Word. The Word is a thing that will carry you through, and the, and the Word has already won the battle. So stay in the fight. Stay in your faith. Don't give up. That's the message that he's giving to us. Okay? So we're going to pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 20. Now, I want to um, have you remember a single phrase. I wish I had printed in here, but I didn't think to do that. Is in verse 9 of chapter 20, where he talks about the people of God. He references it this way. The people of God, comma, the city he loves. 
Okay, I want you to hang on to that thought because the reference now in, in, these, in, in these verses will be to the city, the city of God. And if you think of that phrase literally, then you're going to have an entirely different picture of what it is he's talking about as opposed to if you think of it in a symbolic way. Okay, so just hang on to that. All right, here we go. Verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the picture here is of the end. All right. Now, remember last week we talked about this uh, this phraseology that he uses with, with, with respect to the first death and the first resurrection, the second death and the second resurrection, okay? And so looking at that in a symbolic way, what he's saying is, is the first death that everyone experiences is what? Remember what it is? You would think it's the physical, but it's not. It's you're born dead in sin. That's the first death. So we come into the live, we come into the world alive and dead. And the reference to that is in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter two, where he he says that specifically. Okay, and you and I were born dead uh, in our trespasses and sins, and then he says because of that na- that natural sinfulness uh, that we inherit, uh, that condition of sin, uh, we are by nature children of God's wrath. That hardly seems fair, doesn't it? I mean, you think if, if, if fairness is a big deal for you, you think, well, how could that be fair? You know, you come into the world and you haven't done anything at all, and, all, and here you are uh, subject to God's judgment, and it isn't like you chose that, okay? The choosing of that comes later, of course, yeah, right? When people turn two. But until then, it's a little bit of that sort of, well, how could that be fair? So God, knowing that was the dilemma, he creates the solution that is not fair either. He doubles down on the unfairness of things by doing what? Sending his son Jesus, who lives the best life. He lives the perfect life. Can you imagine? And how is Jesus rewarded for that, for that, that grand effort to live a perfect life? How is he rewarded? How is that fair? What a rip, right? And then he does what? He rises again. And when he does, God says, hmm, there it is. That what he did is good. What he did is enough. And then he says to us, just trust that. Just believe that. And, and when you do, your status changes from uncovered to what? Covered. So when we're covered by God's grace and we receive it by faith, then the covering of his righteousness gives to us forgiveness. If I say, I don't want that, I, I, I can do this on my own. I don't need any God. I don't need any Jesus. I don't need anything that has anything to do with that. Then I'm standing alone as a sinner uncovered. 
And that's what the rest of these verses is talking about. Okay, so let's get into it. So he sees this great white throne. That obviously, there's a judgment uh, thing going on there. And he says that the earth and the heavens flee from his presence. There's no place for them. Why? 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 Why, why not just take this heaven and this earth and this life into eternity with us? It's a pretty good life. Why don't I just take it in with me? Why, why can't I? Because it's, it's corrupted by sin. See, sin, sin has affected everything and corrupted everything. So in order for there to, to be this, uh, this eternal life and, and everything that that means, then there's going to have to be a new heaven and new earth, and that's what he talks about a little bit later on. Okay? So he says, I saw the great and small standing before the throne. The books are opened, and there's a book kind of off to the side, which is the book of life. And that, and that he gets into this idea uh, that somehow what you have done in your life you are judged by. So how do you feel about that? Are you happy about that? Like when you think about your life and you think about all the stuff that you've done, how many of you remember the good things that you did? And then how many of you remember the bad things you did? Yeah, yeah I don't remember to, them, yeah. but she does. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet her memory is better than yours. Because you know, remembers that comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one right there. Yeah, yeah. Wait till we get home, honey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so if if we're thinking about all the things you've ever done, and you think, well, hmm, there's some good things, but ooh, there's some really bad things. If I don't have the covering of God's grace and the forgiveness that that affords then how am I going to feel about the fact that there's the good and the bad, and I'm standing there with both in my hands? Is judgment going to be a happy moment or not so happy moment? It's not going to be a happy moment. And see, that's the beauty of this, is that because of the covering of God's grace that's afforded us in Jesus, and we receive it by faith, when, when we're standing there with, you know, the sack of good stuff and the sack of bad stuff, God looks at us and he goes, you know, I just don't remember any of those bad things because he's looking at us through the lens of forgiveness. And when he looks through the lens of forgiveness, all he sees is what he has forgiven. Now, you know, we look at it and we go, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, you kind of want to hide the bad stuff and only present the good stuff, right? But when you live under that covering of forgiveness, you don't have to do that. And so that's why it's significant here that he talks about the book of life and that those who are standing there uncovered or naked would be another way to think about it, um, that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. Because your sin is the thing that's prominent, and you have rejected the forgiveness that he offers. So it's not even that God is saying, oh, you sinned, I'm throwing you into the lake of fire. It's, I want, I want to forgive you. I, in fact, I have forgiven you, but you have rejected that. And you're saying you want nothing to do with that. What a sad deal. Imagine going to hell forever regretting that. Forever you're living in the knowledge of the fact that you, you, didn't, receive, you didn't accept what was offered as the gift. Gosh, what a tragedy. And the thing is, God, did, he doesn't want that for anybody. Now, he wants that for the devil, of course, because hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not made for us. 
But if you're going to align yourself with that, then he says, okay, that's your eternity. Okay? So it really is a, is a, is a pivotal moment here when, when we realize that, yeah, we've all done stupid, bad, evil, all, you name it, we've all done those things. But, but the worry that goes along with that is, is not ours to carry because Jesus carried it for us to the cross. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So um, let's see if there's anything else in there that I wanted to mention. I don't think so. Okay, let's go to the next verses. So then he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now we know that the old heaven and the old earth corrupted by sin, gone. And now we have what? A new heaven and a new earth. It kind of suggests, maybe, that there is a created place that would involve eternal life. So it's not like we're just like these sort of like holographic persons floating around in space, you know, in heaven. But actually that there's of earth you know there's a, a maybe a new garden of eden kind of thing and you're walking around and you know the only thing is there won't be the tree of knowledge of good and evil because you know that is associated with the old thing but it sort of gives you a little sense of like how great heaven might be that way you know and so you know we wonder about those things and i think that's a good that's a good thought to have to wonder about how wonderful heaven's going to be i know that for those of you that have had this experience, and I've had it too, to be in the presence of a Christian person who is just about maybe seconds away from going to heaven, the thought of this great place is really a great thing. And it's fun to talk about it if you're with that person and that person is able to communicate with you in, in whatever way you can. But even if you even if they're like asleep or on morphine or something and you don't know if they hear you, to still be able to talk about how great that's going to be. And that's the picture that we definitely have here for sure in terms of at Judgment Day. All right, now he says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, some, some people, depending on the perspective they take toward millennium, are seeing this idea that the new Jerusalem actually will come down and be a part of the of Christ's earthly reign or earthly kingdom, all right? But from that amillennial perspective that I've been teaching this from, this is symbolic. So we go back to uh, 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 chapter 20, verse 9, where he's, he uses this phrase, the people of God, comma, the city he loves. The city is symbolic of the people of God. It's not a literal depiction of Jerusalem. It's not 
the city coming down. But it's the idea that he is saying to you and to me that we are the city of God. In the same way that there are other places in the New Testament where he uses different analogies to describe the people of God. The body of Christ, salt and light, right? Uh, the flock he uses, sheep. He uses a lot of imagery, but this particular imagery comes right out of the same chapter that we're looking at, okay? And so it's this idea that we are, what? We are prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then look now what, what the voice from the throne says about us and him in relation. God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And now here's the great thing. We, we, uh, we use this, these words at every single Christian funeral that we do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So if you take a look, uh, 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 I referenced a uh, verse there, Romans 8, 20 to 21, gives us a little uh, different uh, taste of that. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What he's, what he's illustrating is the difference between this life and the life to come. This life is... Uh, it is uh, enslaved to a bondage of decay. So think about that from that point of view. Like, what personal experience do you have with bondage to decay? Personal experience here. What personal? Chris, do you have a personal experience with bondage to decay? As you get older, what do you notice about yourself? <laughs> now you have the Bible phrase for it, bondage to decay, all right? Yeah, how long does it take to get uh, past like a sprained ankle or something like that? Or you step off a curb. Have you ever, you stepped off a curb, you know, and it's like, oh, that kind of hurt. But when you get older, it's like probably going to break something. You know, it's just, it's just that bondage to decay, right? Yeah. And so that's the beauty of what the life to come is, is that there'll be no more bondage to decay because we're going to have new bodies that are equipped for eternity. So, you know, again, it kind of causes you to wonder, like, like, what are you going to look like? Well, you better be happy with it because you'll have it forever, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, how cool is that? So it's going to be like the perfect thing. All right. So anyway, he, he uses again this phrase of the bride and the husband. So we think in terms of, OK, the marriage, the whole the marriage thing the, of how they did it in uh, in Jesus's day. But in terms of the symbolic, the symbolism of it. Who is the husband? Jesus. Jesus. The lamb is, yeah, Jesus is, right? And then we, as his people, are the bride. And so you have this coming together of the husband, the, the husband and the wife, and then heaven is like the marriage home, okay? That's the imagery that he's using, and that would have made perfect sense in, uh, in his day. Well, this, this idea of wiping away every tear actually comes out of the Old Testament, comes out of Isaiah. So Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 says, The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, 
In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So see, eternal life brings the end of death. Death came along when sin did. Remember that? In the garden, you know, God said, you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And then the devil said, oh, that's not true. Okay. But see, then death became a prominent feature of life in this life. And the beautiful aspect of the new heaven and the new earth is no more death. Oh, wow, that's amazing. We better like each other in heaven. I guess we will. Because there won't be any, like, annoyance. Annoyance won't exist, right? I hope I can still be irreverent, though. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then he also mentions this old order has passed away. So let's look at that a little bit here. Romans 5 is very is very instructive as to what that is. Because in Romans 5, Paul is making a comparison of Adam to Jesus. All right? So... So how life was as uh, a sinful person under Adam and the difference with, uh, with Jesus. Okay, so he says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Now, who's that? who is that? Adam. So when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, then they brought uh, sin and death into the world. Okay? How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reigned in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So see, there's the comparison, the old order and then the new order. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many, that's everybody, was made a sinner, so also, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many, that's everyone in faith, will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now, that's a little bit confusing because it kind of makes it sound like that God's law, God's Ten Commandments, the intent of that is to make us worse. But what he's really saying is, is what the law does the Ten Commandments do in particular, is that they give a specificness to what our disobedience is. So if you think of our disobedience from God and you just say that kind of in a generic general sense, then you might say, well, what disobedience are we talking about? Well, let's just go through the Ten Commandments and see if we can identify what one or two disobediences might be in your life. And we could start with the first commandment and end there if we wanted to. Okay? He says, but where sin increased, I love this, where sin increased, what did God's response do? Grace increased. Now, some people would say, well, if I want more grace in my life... then, you know, do the math. If I want multiples of six or seven of grace, then probably I should do ten times the sin, right? No, that isn't what he's saying. Okay. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, see, the old order has passed away, 
And now we have this whole new thing in heaven that we even can't even imagine. You can't imagine. But it sure is fun to think about it, right, as we look forward to it. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the idea here, he says, I'm making everything new. It is kind of interesting. There's a couple of Greek words for the word new. There's the word kainos, which has more to do with being transformed. And then there's the word neos, from which we get our word neo, okay, um, which means brand new, like there was nothing there, and then all of a sudden there's something there. And so anyway, make everything new is there's a transformative aspect to that as well, okay? But notice God is still the creator. God never stopped creating. You know, when the first creation occurred, we always say, well, then he rested and then he didn't do anything after that. No, God continues to create even all the way into eternity. Okay, verse six. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious will those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So see that's the reference back here then. The second death, first death, second death. So the second death has to do with um, eternity. Okay, so it's a little, that's not physical, but it certainly is spiritual. All right, so he says, to the thirsty, I give you drink from the water of life. Takes us right out of Psalm 36, verses 6 to 9. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So it's interesting that um, this idea of the water of life, you remember back when we studied the Gospel of John, and we uh, studied that story of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, they were coming to draw water, and then she said, oh, you know, give me a drink, or I'll get you a drink. And then he says, well, you can have water that will never make you thirsty. Remember that whole thing? Okay, that references this here as well, that there's this, uh, this unending spring of living water. I'm thinking that, isn't it, some of you have traveled over to the... Middle East to Israel, aren't there like places in the wilderness and in the mountains where they have these like an oasis and then it's a spring-fed kind of thing? Did do you did you all get to go to that? Yeah. It's you been to one? Yeah. So that's how they do it, and and so I guess the locals kind of know where those are, and that would always be part of the sort of trade routes that they would take in order to get to from one to the other. Captain to the power line and uh, sell refrigerated Oh, there you go. <laughs> so even in those days. All right. Okay, so now he says, those who are victorious will inherit all this. So we go back to Romans, right? Romans 8. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so that brings in this idea of, that we have this inheritance. Say, say more about that. Well, those verses, literally, the next one is the verse 17, is that we are sons through adoption and inheritance. And then Romans 8, 18 is the eternity perspective that we've been talking about. So these verses precede the we inherit because we are adopted sons. And then we then get to the eternity perspective of what exactly it is we're inheriting because we've been adopted through this perspective. So those verses are predecessing what it is exactly we're adopting, which is the eternity perspective we're waiting on. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, no. That's that's so good. I hadn't. I mean, you're right. I just hadn't thought about that. But when you take the eternity perspective toward your life now, it's not only that we're looking ahead to heaven and saying, "Oh boy, can't wait to get there," but it's also the idea that we are presently in the child of God relationship with him. In other words, you don't have to wait to heaven to get that. When we get to heaven, it'll be the full realization of it or the full experience of it. But but we have it now. Okay. And that and that does not change no matter uh what goes on in your life now. Sometimes I sometimes I think there is a little bit of uh like disappointment though that we feel with that because we go you know, if I'm this child of God and and I'm inheriting all these things right now, uh, how come I'm not seeing more of it? You know, kind of that idea. It, it's it's a little bit like, well, that ought to like that ought to make life a little bit different for me right now. You know, things ought to be a little better, and people should like me more, and you know, I mean, stuff like that. And that's really where the devil sneaks in, the dragon sneaks in, or the beast does, and says. And you're right. You deserve better. If God really loved you, he would not cause or allow bad things to happen in your life. He would be he would be better protecting you. He would be better uh, giving you what you need. So, you know, you probably ought to think twice about that devotion and faith that you have to God because it really ought to count for something more because after all, you deserve better. And there are a ton of people today who believe that. I deserve better. And if I can't get it from God and I can't get it from you, then I'm going to go and figure out some way to get it myself. And that's the beginning of idolatry. Yes. Isn't that a super ignorant thing to say, though? Because <laughs> God's only son, he literally... I mean, when you look at early Christianity, it wasn't exactly like Jesus was the most popular person, and he was crucified on a cross and had a very hard life and was not the most popular. So what then leads us to believe that we're going to lead a life of popularity? Because I'm pretty sure multiple times in the Bible it says we're going to be persecuted because we follow him. So that seems like a pretty ignorant thing to believe that if we're going to be inheriting and have the inheritance of children of God, why would we for a second think that following the footsteps of Jesus is going to be easy? 
Because I don't find anywhere in the Bible where it said that he was getting likes on Instagram. I sit there and think about that where, it, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's easy. And I sit there and think about when I get frustrated with myself about it. And it's, it never says it was going to be easy. And it quite frankly says we're going to get the Jesus persecuted out of us. Speak for yourself over there. But as soon as the followers got persecuted, they fell away. Well, that's I mean, why Jesus came and came to earth. Yeah, but his main follower denied him three times on the day that he was going he to. Peter. Yeah, exactly. But that was the guy he was going to build the church on. Okay, let's get let's get some other thoughts in here. All right. We're stirring up something. I love it. Yeah. Tim. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. It's, you know, being a Christian doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We are going to be persecuted. But what's interesting to me when you were talking is, as a non-believer, you see so many of them looking for the truth. They're searching for what we have. And when we have it, that's one less thing we have to worry about. But that does not mean it's going to be easy. That does not mean we still have sin that is not affecting us. It still is. So what do you say to somebody who thought it would be, should be easier? They thought it would be, and, and it turns out that it's not. What, what do you say to them? Life's not going to be easy here on earth. We are going to be persecuted for our faith, for our belief. But we have the secret at the end. We have victory at the end. That when we, if we're doing it wrong, if we're wrong, what's the worst that happens? We get to the end of this and we're wrong, but we're not. You go back and look at the history. Look at what our word says, what God's word says to us. Mm -hmm. We get to the end and we're right, which we are. There's where the reward is. Yeah, I think sometimes um, there are different, um, there are different seasons or there are different times of life when um, that message makes more sense, sense than others. You know, I do think that um, maybe it's a maybe it's an age thing or maybe it's just an experience thing that we're not as receptive to the idea that um, that life is pretty much the same for us as it is for everybody. The difference is what's in here and then where that's going to end up. Okay, so some of it is a maturity thing, some of it is a age thing, some of it's experience thing, but we keep saying it is the point. And it's how we deal with it, right? We have the peace. So the troubles, the turmoils that come our way, yep. we know where our faith lies, we know who's in control. Yeah. So those turmoils aren't as drastic as, yes, it hurts. Yes, financial bankruptcy or whatever you're going through at that time, or suffering and loss, hurts but we know where it's coming from we know who's what the plan is yeah i think that sometimes we do underestimate the power of the witness that we are giving off when we're dealing with crummy things and we just don't we just don't think about it because you know like you're dealing with it but then other people are thinking i don't know how you do it i don't know how you how do you like have a smile ever on your face or you know that kind of thing and and when it is made known to you because that person comes up and says that i don't know how you do it then there's like the opportunity 
to say. Yeah, Richard. Well, I'm thinking that we, we are in the world and part of either beast one or beast number two. Uh, they are always, they're running for office, promising to bring heaven on earth. So against that backdrop, you know, if you do this, everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. If you do this, everything will be fine. We, we continually hear that. Yeah. And, and really at the core, you know, we have, we have to think, well, actually, it's not going to be fine. Right. Okay, because fine is way out there in the future. Right. And that's our hope. And just as you said, with our hope, we're walking down the road with our smile. And somebody says, how can you be smiling? You know, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Are you not aware of all these problems? Yeah, and it's not, I mean, I sort of say that that way. We're not always smiling. But, but the point is, is that, well, it's like Paul talks about, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're knocked around, but not crushed. You know, we're, we're confused, but not lost. I mean, you know, that's kind of my words, but it's still that idea that, that we're taking the hits. Christians take the hits like anybody else. But the, the difference is, is that when you have that eternity perspective, what you know is different from what everybody else knows. And there's opportunity in there someplace at some point to share that. Yeah, Dennis. The Bible also tells us that they're going to experience his glory and they're going to experience his suffering. Yeah. Yeah, we would like it just to be the glory part, wouldn't we? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of a commercial where everybody's running around. There's an evil uh, allergy guy. You know, I don't know if you've seen The it. evil allergy guy. I know that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and everyone's running around crazy and everything. And then this one guy, he's, he's, he's uh, I guess, <coughs> Yeah. And you just walking along, looking around, wondering why. Yes. That's it. The gospel is spiritual flonase. That's what it is. <laughs> I love it. That is awesome. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, a little shot here and there, you know. How perfect is that? I love that example. That's great. Yeah, Milo. I guess I'd like to make a comment on this. Yeah. God does not micromanage. God does not micromanage. And he kind of expects you to do your part. Okay. All right. Now, our part is not getting to heaven. That's He, he took care of that for us. But then everything after that, we, we got some participation in that, don't we? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It'd be easy just to kind of go roll, curl up in a ball and say, well, thank goodness I'm going to heaven, right? But that's not really living your life either. Okay, great point, great point. Yeah, Arnold. Well, can I share a couple of verses? Well, we're in a Bible study. I think that'd be all right. <laughs> there's, there's many in here. Yes, 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 yes. But Paul is telling Timothy. Uh, uh, quote, give us a chapter and a verse. It's a chapter, first, second Timothy 1, uh, verse, can't see. <laughs> verse 8. Okay. He says, but, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then another verse I looked up, and it's, it's in Romans chapter 5, um, verse 3, where he says, We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Yeah. It, it, see, that it gives us a radical perspective 
that is not necessarily shared by people who kind of walk around with a chip on their shoulder saying, life has ripped me off. Okay? Thing, things didn't go for me the way they should have. I was born a different race. I was born in a different country. I was born with a different set of privileges. I was born uh, whatever it was. And if you if you walk around with that with that perspective in your life and you don't have anything else that points to eternity, then the only result of that in your life is bitterness and resentment because you cannot muster your own sense of faith, hope, and love. You can't. People by nature cannot do that. It takes something outside of me to come in and change me. That's the being made alive in Christ. And that means that faith, hope, and love is not wishful thinking. Oh, I hope things get better. There's a silver lining in every cloud. It isn't that. It, it, is, a, it is a grounded assurance that God is with you. He knows what he's doing. And in the end, you still belong to him. You are his beloved, and nothing changes that. And that's what carries us through. Yeah. Everybody is a victim who chooses to be a victim. So I get sick and tired of watching TV and seeing these people cry and moan and groan that they're a victim of this and a victim of that. And, you know, if you choose to be a victim, you are a victim. You can be. I think some people have been victimized. Okay. You don't have to stay a victim. You don't have to. What I'm saying is, and what I hear Jesus saying through John, is that the life in, in Christ has been made possible because God victimized Jesus for us. And when you move your life in that direction, or you accept that in faith, and then you, you allow that to wash over you, then you can be victimized in your life. You can be ripped off. You can have people treat you unfairly. You can say that 10 people had more privilege than you did, but it does not change the ultimate reality that we are his beloved and that that's what doesn't change in this life and in the life to come. So it, that, that, just becomes, that just becomes the way that we think about it. It, it doesn't mean, I think, and I, I would say this, Truthfully, it doesn't mean that we look with disdain at other people who are choosing a different route. If anything, we can look at those people and say, gosh, we've got great news to share with you. Let's pray that God will open the doors for, for that to happen. And then let's pray that when he opens the doors, we got the brains enough to recognize it, right? And then we're prepared to do it, to do it. And not shirk from that and say, well, gee whiz, what, what, what was Pastor Audie's number again? What was that? You know, I'm not available, right? But it's this idea that we're prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. But the hope that we have comes from Jesus. And, and at the end of the day, that's the thing that we say. Okay? All right, let's keep going. So then he says in verse 9, no, yeah, verse 9, yeah. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. That's the people of God 
coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So here we have the people of God, and the reference of the twelve tribes has to do now with the, all the people in the Old Testament who were believers in the promises of God. Okay, that's the reference. So then we go to the next part. He says there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of what? the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So now we have all of the New Testament believers in Jesus. Okay? Now, it's interesting, the reference of the 12, okay? And I just throw this in here that I don't know would Judas's name have been included because he was originally part of the 12. Then he went and, and, and killed himself. And then before Pentecost, they replaced him by the drawing of lots with Matthias. So I don't know, you know, I guess we'll have to wait till we get there. But it still is this sense of the greatness and the grandeur of the way that God views you and me, you and me. But it's you and me in the new order. It's you and me in the new heaven. It's you and me in the new earth. Okay, closing thoughts. Last words. Okay, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the glorious picture that you're giving to us of what eternity will be like for those whose names are written in the book of life. For, for, you, for us, Lord, who trust in you and believe in what your son Jesus did for us. We thank you for that gift. We know, Lord, that there are so many people in our world today that are looking for the certainty. They're, they're looking for the, the faith and the hope and the love. And there's so many messages in the world around us, so many voices clamoring to offer the truth or to, clamoring to offer the answer or, or some sort of ideal picture of, of how wonderful life could be if only you don't follow Jesus. Lord, we know that is not true. We know that that's a lie. And so, Lord, I would simply pray for each one of us this week that you would open the doors that are already in the eyes and the minds and the hearts of the people we know, the people that are around us, the people that are searching, and give us opportunity, give us courage, and give us your words to be able to speak and to live that message of faith, hope, and love. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,